Hello and welcome to another episode of the Black Business Psychology Network's podcast. This podcast episode will feature a sports and exercise psychologist who is currently in her final year of pursuing a professional doctorate in sports and exercise psychology. That you're probably thinking, what's the difference between a PhD and a professional doctorate? So I just thought I'd introduce the session with this explanation. A professional doctorate focuses on applying research to practical problems, formulating solutions to complex issues and designing effective professional practices. It also does incorporate a research component as well, but in general tends to be much more practically focused than a PhD. A PhD usually focuses on an independent research project that is something new that has not been researched before. It takes three years full-time and around six years part-time, which is the same as the professional doctorates, but they tend to stick to more of a schedule and they usually have lectures as well as a dissertation or a thesis element or research element. In the PhD, you tend to be working a lot by yourself and with a supervisor. So you don't necessarily have a group of people to bounce ideas off of. You can do with whoever's in your cohort, but everybody's working on a different project. Whereas in a professional doctorate, you tend to have people working together who are doing those taught modules. So you'll be working on things together and having discussions, whereas in the PhD, less so. But a lot of PhD programs are starting to do that. At the end of the professional doctorate and at the end of a PhD, you do have the title of doctor. So you can use this as a prefix in your name. Just I would let you know about the differences between the two qualifications. They are similar, but they're not exactly the same. In psychology, you can do a professional doctorate in most of the areas. So forensic psychology, clinical psychology, health psychology, occupational psychology and sports and exercise psychology, along with counselling psychology. You can also complete PhD research um, into these areas of psychology. So it depends on whether you want to have a bit more of a structured professional look which usually gives you chartered status as well as an academic edge or if you just wanted to have much more of a research focus. So stay tuned for the interview with the sports psychologist who I will introduce. Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of the podcast with the Black Business Psychology Network. Not all of our podcasts feature black business psychologists. They have a lot of different psychologists on and today I'm joined by Dawn Marie Armstrong who is a sports psychologist, so welcome. Thank you for having me, it's lovely to be here this evening. So Dawn, uh, first of all, would you just like to introduce yourself and your current like employment status or education status? Well at the present moment I'm unemployed, I just finished my contract um, at university in Scotland um, luckily enough, through the work that I completed, I've also received my associate fellowship with the Higher Education Academy, which now qualifies me, you know, to hold more academic posts in the near future. Brilliant. Obviously, COVID has impacted the educational sector heavily. Um, so now coming into my own, it's really a bit rocky, um, you know, finding things that are more, I'd say more permanent going forward. So it's really just my heart keeping the faith and just like pressing on. But a little about myself, I am originally from the Caribbean island of Barbados. 
Um, I wrote my master's degree here in the UK. Okay. Academic year 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Left the UK, went back to the Caribbean. I passed mm-hmm. a PhD scholarship at the time back in 2013 and stayed at home for about five years after that. Mm-hmm. Working, running my own consultancy. Ooh. Um, working contractually with sporting organizations at home, working across sports, and was fortunate enough to be awarded a National Development Scholarship um, to begin my doctorate at the start of 2018 at Liverpool John Moores University. Right. So that's a professional doctorate in sport and exercise psychology. And two years in, two and a half years in, here I am, <laughs> um, well on my way to complete but again, caught up in the midst of COVID with all of the uncertainty. Yeah. There have been some research implications for me as well. Mm. So it's the research component of my portfolio. Yeah. That's bringing the most, I, want, I wouldn't say trouble, but with everyone being on lockdown, you know, everyone's social distancing is really yeah. hard to get into organizations to collect data. Mm-hmm. And because some of my work is conducted with children, um, right. they're considered vulnerable it's going to be very difficult to host you know zoom meetings with them mm-hmm. <laughs> to get them in the same space to you know be be level-headed and not too excited yeah you know? oh bless them yeah yeah, yeah. To, be, to be in interviews um to conduct research so that's the that's the downside I would say um to the portfolio coming into what should have been the end mm. to be delayed and to have to extend now until the end of the year is just mm-hmm. some challenges for me, motivational challenges mainly, mm-hmm. because truthfully I feel as if if I get over the finish line, I'll literally, literally be crawling yeah. over the finish line, but I ultimately believe that I'll get there soon. So, Absolutely, <laughs> I agree. It's a little bit like, because I myself have done a PhD, but like not a professional doctor, it's slightly different it's that finish line aspect you just have to get there and then you can collapse on the finish line like a lot of athletes do that's what I would have probably would have been crawling to the end of the finish line if it was me so I can definitely relate to that um you spoke about some of the consultancies uh stuff that you were doing when you were in Barbados after your MSc um can you tell us more about a bit about that like what kind of work were you doing yeah that's all right so I consulted um within volleyball at home so mm-hmm. back in Barbados sport isn't very professional so it's mostly like amateur you get most of your contracts or most work opportunities through organizations it's a very small country you know people mm-hmm. think of sports psychology they think Don Marie Armstrong I would have been one of the only females at the time who would have pursued, you know, postgraduate studies in sport and exercise psychology. And I was also a cricketer. Oh, really? So coming off the back of playing sports, raising the masters in sports psychology, I would say that the popularity was somewhat there to then kind of like transfer those skills mm-hmm. and to really get people to buy into what sports psychology is. Yeah. However, sometimes those opportunities that I was granted were actually done on the basis of goodwill. Mm-hmm. So some, some people always say, oh, you know, to get your name out there, it's best to come and do such and such, you know, for this in return. And I kind of bought into it for a little bit because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to focus on getting my name out there and yeah. you know, being friendly and being open and, and, and wants to teach people more so as yeah. opposed to earning money. Unfortunately. <laughs> Um, about two years after that, it did pay off because then I was contracted with one of the professional cricket teams, you know, in the Caribbean. 
Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to work with their under-19 team um, preparing for the 2018 World Cup at the time. And I would say that was the best year of my professional life. You know, being at home, I was a PE teacher as well. And I got okay. to travel with the teams and I traveled across the Caribbean, you know, and we're treated really well once we begin working at the professional level. So I actually had to make myself unavailable for those opportunities to come over to the UK to start the doctorate. And it was something that kind of caused me to question my decision-making for mm-hmm. some time until I really started to settle in the UK. Yeah. And yeah, so that was that was how everything took off for me at home. Um, I love cricket. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I would love to continue working within this sport. Mm-hmm. But we'll see how things go in the future. That's really interesting. Like, it seems like you've got a lot of, different skills so you were a sports person yourself so you played cricket and then you were a PE teacher too so that's another skill set and then it seems like your doctoral research goes into that working with younger people in a sports arena so it it all gets tied in together. I do have a preference for elite youth sport and Mm -hmm. youth sport in general I just think it's more important to develop Mm -hmm. whereas you know some people like to work with winners and like yeah. to work with people who are already shining. I quite like to work in the background, you know, developing the character, developing, you know, the the I say the things that are essential to one's personal development, mm-hmm. personal well being, and just ultimate holistic thriving. Yeah, <laughs> um, definitely. What I find is most important. And the easiest way to ingrain that in a person is is when they're shapeable. And I find people are more shapeable in the youth. Yeah. Um, they're more willing to learn and more willing to to accept you know what you're trying to teach and more willing to receive it as opposed Mm -hmm. to you know an adult who's set in their ways and (laughs) not interested in hearing anything because they know best and that's fair you know for some people who because ultimately sometimes we should know what is best for ourselves but I I just like to mold definitely that sounds so interesting and I'm going to ask you a question now which yeah. sounds really arbitrary but so what exactly is sports psychology and you've probably heard this about a million times so I apologize yeah that's all right so for me um in my practice sports psychology is like the methodological mm-hmm. <laughs> training of the mind it's very systematic when you kind of think about you know mental skills and the things that we require in order to adopt and to to adapt and to thrive in daily life Mm -hmm. and I try to work with people Mm -hmm. um, in and out of the sport arena more so in sport to just basically become aware of these skills that most of them already possess Mm -hmm. and attempt to coach them to capitalize on the application of these skills to enhance Mm -hmm. performance and well-being. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's similar to what you would do, what a psychologist would do in a lot of other aspects or a lot of different disciplines, yeah. namely like a clinical psychologist would do the same but in a yeah. clinical setting or an organisational or occupational psychologist would do the same, but in a work or industrial setting. So it's the same kind of principles that you're applying, but in a sports setting to make sure sports people yeah. are hitting the peak of their performance and also paying attention to their well-being and also paying yeah. attention to their 
skill spaces. True. And because people generally think that sports people are well-rounded, mm. um, it's also hope that the skills that I teach then transfer back to daily life. Mm-hmm. If an athlete comes to me um, because they're lacking confidence and we work on building confidence, then what I do is package that in a way where it's very tangible for the athlete. Mm -hmm. So not only do they know what confidence should be, but they have skills to at least go off on their own and practice what I would have been teaching Mm -hmm. and be able to apply it to themselves so that if they're confident in their sport, they're confident at work, they're confident in their relationships, they're confident at home. So it's not just to say, oh, yeah, I want to work with you because I definitely think you can win this 100 meter race and I want Mm -hmm. you to be confident about that. But after the race has ended, how then do you transfer that confidence to becoming the best version of you? That's the most important thing for me in working with clients. And that Mm. goes across loads of different skills um, and skills that sometimes I find develop organically out of working with clients. So it's not always the generic confidence, motivation, you know, Mm emotional control it's not just always that you come to find that people value things like commitment and friendship and all of these other things that one would say are very like abstract when it comes to sports psychology things that people say don't quite fit Mm -hmm. but when you take into consideration the athlete those are the things that they value yeah they can trade in their friendships then you would know that if they have the support that they need um in sport then the performance follows. Well, that makes sense because, like you're saying, athletes are assumed to be well-rounded. Like everybody is assumed to be well-rounded, really. But actually teaching people the skills and giving them the ability to express and like fill in the gaps is what you're doing. Um, yeah. Not just in the sports professional career, yeah. but also just in general. Excellent. Yeah. And you're talking about clients. So do you work, I know you've had a lot of different roles So do you work with individual athletes or do you work with like teams and national teams, things like that? Yeah, so for the purposes of the doctorate, um, so we had to strategically work with individual clients Mm -hmm. and, you know, have a fixed placement um, to get the hours to go towards the completion of the program. So I did some individual clients upon referral from home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fortunate to work with some Olympic athletes, some national cricketers in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I tried to diversify the individual consultancy as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But my placement, again, was with a national team, mm-hmm. youth cricket here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And they eventually qualified for the World Cup. So unlike our team at home who has automatic qualification, oh. I actually worked with them for... Yeah, just about two years, Mm -hmm. just under two years, sorry. And they had to go through the entire process of qualifiers to then qualify. I think the last time that they qualified prior to 2020 was 2016. So they have qualified within the last, within the last tournament, sorry. So they didn't qualify in 2018, but they did go in 2020. Mm -hmm. And it didn't quite pan out how I would have wanted. Like The placement was fantastic uh, with respect to the work that I did. But then the way that I was treated behind the work that I I did and behind what I invested into the team with respect to time and with respect to to just intellect, I'd say, um, wasn't really appreciated in the end. So I really left that placement with a sense of, you know, not feeling very appreciated and 
just leaving with it more as a learning experience to what future opportunities may bring yeah being more on my guard mm. um, with respect to how how much i commit in the future yeah without knowing what eventually will be given to me for that commitment it's that toss-up of effort in, effort and how much effort you should put in to get a reward and how much reward, what that looks like in that setting, and is it worth you putting that effort in if you're not going to get the reward? So yeah. I think we'll pick that up a little bit later because I do want to ask. Um, but in terms of that placement, what kind of things did you implement to the cricket team? So across the time, so because World Cup qualification was so long-term at the start, so I started mm-hmm. with them March 2018, Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just general team building at first. So they came from different parts of the country, didn't know each other, didn't know me. Um, mm-hmm. I believe I was one of the first black persons to be in and around the environment. Right. So it was always for me a bit nervy. Mm-hmm. Um, we call it gaining entry. So it's always a bit nervy, like coming into the work environment, you know, eh, being treated differently to some extent. Um, but I think the experience that I brought from home with the cricket actually caused them to to give me a bit more value. Mm-hmm. I always enjoyed working with the players because they were always like asking me about players at home and because I knew a lot of the players very well from playing the sport. Yeah. That was one of my ways of kind of like hooking them and getting them to buy into what I was offering. So initially I started out as... Um, yeah, just team building, getting to know each other, mm-hmm. um, getting to know coaches, getting to know them as individuals. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the work started in the summer of okay. 2018. And that was when I went in again, like really generic, let's look at these topics again, because you're not having the access to like formulate exactly what you would want to do so then you're just going with your knowledge base mm-hmm. and begin to teach them skills that you think would be necessary by consulting with coaches as well and that started with a series of e-presentations mm-hmm. because it was really difficult again to meet with them I asked to meet with parents and never really came through I decided to take the initiative mm-hmm. and set and record these e-presentations send them via email ask the boys to watch them discuss it with them at games, ask them about how it's applicable to the games that they're presently playing, you know, meet with them after games. Mm-hmm. It was really intense more so in the summer. And this mm-hmm. was summer 2018 and 2019. Um, because I just really felt the need to put in the effort, you know, yeah. I spoke about World Cup qualification from day one. So mm-hmm. I was like, you know, World Cup qualification is so far out of reach but it's still a goal and it's still something that we need to work towards mm-hmm. that was something that I asked them constantly even before they qualified a year later you know mm. what you want to accomplish from being here and I just got that in their mind from the get-go Brilliant. you know so framing yeah yeah so, yeah that sounds really interesting um so going back you said you did an MSc in sports psychology and even before that what kind of led you to be interested in sports and sports psychology? I'll tell you what, some person actually came to me. Um, I would never forget. I never even got the chance to thank them. So again, I was heavily involved in cricket and the center for the professional cricket was based at the university. Mm-hmm. And I had an opportunity to come to England and play as a pro in 2010. 
Right. I say pro because obviously women back in 2010 weren't really being paid as professionals. Oh. <laughs> I was like an overseas player and you know you come over to this country and mm-hmm. take a club and I even played county wow. in that year and I remember going into the office and bidding some person farewell and I was like hey so I'm done university now I'm leaving for the UK this weekend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I'm going to pursue postgraduate studies in forensic psychology because right. I had to finish, like, criminology courses and criminal justice courses in my final year. And I was really keen to, like, kind of get into that, that level of postgraduate study. And as I was leaving the university, the person ran over to me and tapped me on my back. And they were like, Dawn, have you ever thought about sports psychology? And I was like, there are postgraduate courses in sports psychology available and they were like well you never know um but I think that'll be a good fit for you so when I came up to the UK in 2010 I started searching mm. you know postgraduate programs in sport and exercise psychology sports psychology mm-hmm. and then I recognized that it was kind of like a joint program so you have the sport and exercise yeah. and then I enrolled the following year um I scholarship then as well being a national cricketer, so I had oh, cool. you know, part tuition sponsorship, um, part tuition scholarship, sorry. Mm-hmm. And that's where it really took off for me. That's so <laughs> sport, sport has afforded me some opportunities more so academically. So I capitalize more on the academic opportunities because then what would be 10 years ago, women weren't, I didn't see a future in cricket. So mm-hmm. I was just more like, you know, if I play cricket and I get hurt, that's me. But if I decide to, you know, focus on my professional ambitions, mm-hmm. my degrees will never leave me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was the main motivation for sticking solely to the, to the sport, to the sports psychology, ultimately. Yeah. So having like something to fall back on in case really? a professional career or whatever happened with that didn't give you, afford you the lifestyle that you need to live off. <laughs> That's the bottom line really, isn't it? And I think I was slated a bit as well. So because I was really ambitious with respect to my studies, you know, a lot of persons back home didn't quite like it because then a lot of the girls weren't really into studies you know they were really focused on their cricket and right. I was the one that was like well I've got work to do so <laughs> you know um, so <laughs> I think having those options kind of really scared people mm. and yeah it's just one of those things when you have to make these choices in life and you make them and you do what's best for you so how did you well you've spoken a little bit about how you got onto the professional doctorate but I forgot to mention I also had a job as well. Okay. Um, so basically, in between the cricket, I was fortunate enough to be employed by a Premier League club. Oh. I was employed uh, uh, come November 2019. So mm-hmm. my placement then ultimately, after I thought I was going to be paid, mm-hmm. ended up being voluntary. And um, yeah, I kind of sat with them and let them know, well, this isn't going to play for two years. Um, <laughs> and I really yeah. think I need to you know, begin to look for opportunities, paid opportunities, mainly because I came from home paid mm-hmm. and wanted to continue working paid. And I looked all into London, started to search in London because mm-hmm. people were like, oh, London is more diverse, there are more opportunities. Mm-hmm. And I got a job in London working at a Premier League club at the time. Brilliant. So I was commuting between London and Scotland. No way. Um, so yeah, working 
friendly club in London, um, stayed with some relatives in London and working with the boys remotely <laughs> in Scotland. Oh, goodness. So I had to be very, very, very innovative um, mm. to fulfill both commitments, job commitments, obviously, because you were being paid and then placement commitments, because obviously that was affording me the opportunity to get the hours for the program. Yeah. So that was also another, <laughs> another sacrifice that I had to make. Um, in order to get the hours that I needed for the qualification. Gosh, you're literally juggling like unpaid, paid work, trying really? to get paid work so you can eat, but yeah. then trying to get unpaid work so you can finish. You're talking about the hours, um, the hours aspect of the yeah. doctorate. How many hours do you have to have before like that well, side is fulfilled? Even though my supervisor has cautioned me about it before, <laughs> um, because independently you are supposed to track hours and I believe I could be wrong but I think after two years two to four years one should have about 3,100 hours accumulated wow. 3,100 I believe mm-hmm. I could be wrong but when I started tracking my hours and he saw that I was tracking my hours he kept saying you don't have to do that but then I'm like quite like you know you want to know <laughs> but so I want to know that if I'm writing this doctorate that I am mm-hmm. even though it's not necessary that I am on course with mm-hmm. other with the other trainees independently yeah so I think after the few years I had a mass um something of about 1800 I think 3100 could have been wrong I think that could have been my calculation Mm-hmm. But I believe it's about twenty, twenty-four to twenty-eight hundred. Um, that's some accumulate over. Yeah. So, so by the end of the second year, I was at eighteen hundred, and now I'm presently at two thousand, two thousand hours. So I'm, I believe that I'm well on track to to get in the hours that I think I need. Yeah. For my own fulfillment, right. <laughs> um, to just ensure that I am getting getting the the amount of work yeah putting in the amount of time so that when I'm finished it doesn't seem like oh you've got a doctorate oh I need to do more exactly but you've done enough um, yeah ultimately so I'm, I'm quite happy to just continue on see how much I get but I do feel like the 2000 <laughs> compared to some of the others because mm. I've also had another job working yeah. at a university as well wow and um, so <laughs> I've done everything yeah that I could have CPD wise, I've been say pipe rep, yeah, um, set rep. I stepped down on, I stepped down tomorrow, so yeah, by oh. Friday, there'll be a new person in my position, and that afforded me a lot of CPD opportunities as well. Right. So, all across, across all four competencies, because of the research, research yeah. is the only one that has really kind of like fallen back due to COVID. Mm. everything else has hit their markers yeah you teaching and training and cpd so you're 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 on track yeah. like it sounds like you're definitely on oh, track yeah. there and yeah. you've made sure that you had those opportunities and those experiences. so when i when i sit down to to defend my work when i sit down to do my waiver yeah you know, that people would really see okay i missed everything she's really done what she was supposed to do absolutely and that's the most important thing no one can say you haven't after all and you've evidenced <laughs> it all as well so they can't yeah there's your hours oh they're here <laughs> right in front of you um excellent so let if i go to the the cricket mm-hmm. coaching 
role or sports psychology role what does a typical day look like if there is such a thing well, i can tell you about probably one of my typical best days and this was um in into the world cup setup mm -hmm. i think it was my last day or the last camp that we attended was a christmas camp so it was just before the christmas break in 2018 we were in st kitts at the time mm -hmm. so the typical day um everything is timetabled for you so mm -hmm. before you get onto the plane you've got an itinerary of what you're supposed to be doing your sessions are scheduled you know breakfast is at a certain time lunch is at a certain time dinner is at a certain time um, the way that we're treated normally, everything is included, mm -hmm. and stipends are included as well. So it's kind of like it's kind of like the best of both worlds. So you get this thing, and nice to tell you get to have, you know, lots of perks. I like to call them because it's yeah. nice to at least know you're going to have a salary. Then you have a stipend, and then you're also being treated. You know, you're also being valued. I call it being valued because mm. I know there's some consultants who do work. They come, they're flying. They get the ticket, do the work, and then they're gone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, because they really wanted me around as like a staunch member, I would say, of the, the management team mm -hmm. at the time. Um, I was just involved in everything. You know, you wake up, you get ready, you dress as one of the, the team members, mm -hmm. you have your breakfast. Um, boys have all got their other sessions scheduled in. So, mm -hmm. physiotherapy sessions, sports science sessions. They've got media sessions, so we've wow. all had um, we've all had our times when everything is always so fixed and so detailed, yeah. and you have to sit to the schedule mm. when working in that environment. So for me, working in that environment, I think transfers more so into everyday life. So you've <laughs> always got a schedule. You've always got mm -hmm. something to do. Always have something to work on, and. Mm -hmm. It does create a certain level of discipline. Yeah. Me just as I was playing cricket, how we had to do the same thing. It's just me in the same environment in a different role. Absolutely. Um, so that's what the typical day looks like. So it's very kind of planned out. Everyone knows where they are before time anyway. You know where you're meant to be. You know what you're supposed to be doing. Sounds quite nice. <laughs> I love a bit of it is nice. I tell you, we staying some of the nicest hotels um you know across the caribbean mm. yeah even though it's business it's work there's always yeah. something for you to you know get out and see the country it's mm. always time for you to meet new people and it's it's just really really well-rounded um and i guess it's because in the caribbean it's very much professional yeah and cricket is our most professional sport <laughs> so so that's how it is. Um, I really do miss it. Not the work, but just just the just the feeling of belongingness mm -hmm. and you know, yeah, just being valued. I know I said that a lot across the meeting. Mm. And I, I guess maybe you can code it and use it, but I think sports psychology within the grand scheme of the professional psychology is mm -hmm. like sister. So it's, mm -hmm. it's always like, you're always like fighting extra hard for people yeah. to understand what you do and, you know, see the value in what you do. Yeah. Whereas there's some people that it just comes automatically to. So as a professional, you're always going to gravitate towards persons that you think value what you do. Absolutely. Otherwise, why would you waste your time? It's not equitable. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. 
anyone can do it you know so that's that's a thing in our field you know and then there are people who go on youtube and they create content and they get, they get a lot of visibility and then they're like oh you know i'm a mental coach i'm a performance coach i'm a mindset coach you know every every other variation of what an <laughs> exercise psychologist is yeah um, though I'm in training, you know, I think it really devalues what we what we put the effort and the investment into. So it's it's hard as a professional to be kind of weighed up against people who aren't even as qualified as you are. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was ex- having the exact same conversation yesterday with somebody who is a like a business coach, like a career coach, but she's got her qualifications in career oh. coaching. But there's so many people because psychology in itself is not a protected term in the uk but i'm sure like chartered sports psychologist is like chartered organization or occupational psychologist is but like psychologist isn't and therapist isn't and counselor isn't so you've got loads of people running around giving themselves labels but they haven't done any qualification at all yeah or very dubious ones that you can get online not that there's anything wrong online but you know what I mean so it's it's, you're literally battling with people who don't have the same level of training and expertise as you do and and same level of ethics yeah ethics is key and that's that's where a lot of people we're not saying that you know we don't want people to be able to do what we do because it's a certain level of of time and it's a certain level if you do it long enough yeah and you as you say do the the necessary courses to build a foundation mm-hmm. then that's fine for you to do it you know not with clients are to be paid but if you're just looking to generate interest then that's all right if you're looking to educate people that's fine but when it comes to knowing those ethical boundaries you know yeah. when it comes to practicing confidential um enforcing confidentiality mm-hmm. and you know establishing professional boundaries you see that people don't know how to get it done because they never knew you know all of the things that go into creating an effective consultancy creating an effective therapeutic relationship and and for me it's like sure I would want lots of people to speak about sports psychology because mm-hmm. the more traction we get you know the more business and time we could receive but if you're not doing it to generate interest, then then don't do it at all because Absolutely. it's like you're stealing from the profession. Yeah, you know. So it's just it's just opened my eyes to the reality of the world because at home mm-hmm. I never saw the UK this way. <laughs> <laughs> at home I was like, oh yeah, I'm finally gonna go back, get my qualification, become accredited. You know, just begin working as soon as they come to the UK it's all going to be perfect and then they come over here and it's like well here's the thing we don't know how to keep the crows out of the nest and it's like what (laughs) why am I paying all of this money Mm -hmm. you know so that's that's another thing yeah when it comes to the qualification in itself and the and the it does have tremendous value but Mm -hmm. it's it's how you feel ultimately writing the program that causes the the nervousness. <laughs> I understand that. I understand yeah. that. And another question about a day in a life. So when you were working at the Premiership Club, that shall remain nameless, <laughs> yeah. what was what was a typical day like there? Um typical I was part time. Um the academies usually start training in the evening. So 
I would get into work. Sometimes the earliest would be midday if I've got some prepping to do. Mm-hmm. But it was always, you know, pitch side with the athletes, mm-hmm. having fun, high-fiving, chatting to them about mental skills. I worked with the really, really young boys. So mm. I worked within the foundation phase. Okay. So it was really, um, yeah, it's really fun. It yeah. was really youngest athletes that, I, that I've ever worked with. And I was really, really again open-minded going into the environment and I mm-hmm. it really helped me to see how much I actually love what I do mm-hmm. and how much I actually like to work with children and yeah so from about 4 30 to 7 30 on evenings I believe mm-hmm. 4 30 to 6 30 sorry on evenings was training mm-hmm. um I would fully integrate myself into training sessions sometimes working within games alongside coaches and really normalizing sports psychology at a very young age yeah um I did some travel to some tournaments yeah travel to some tournaments and really had the opportunity to to enjoy working Mm. um, with such young children how old were they how old are the boys? Um, nine to 12 years old. Oh, that's, I do like that age. It is, it is a good age to work. Yeah, definitely. yeah. So they were all really young and they were all so keen. And then there were, some, <laughs> there were some players that would literally walk over to me and be like, so why are you talking to them and not me? Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, well, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it was really, really interesting. And it was nice to see that they wanted to talk to me, to be mm-hmm. fair. And it, it just shows, like, how quick children are to really, like, pick up on things and yeah. to really understand the purpose of you being there. So for the, the mere fact that they knew that I was there talking, mm-hmm. you know, to some of them, and right. not, not some and not others, but, you know, I would have conversations with specific players at, mm-hmm. at certain times. And they were just curious, and I love that curiosity. Sounds really nice. It does sound nice. It's, it's a bit of innocence, but it's also they're already doing something that they love. So being able to feed into the early experiences that they have in the sport, yeah. so at such an early and crucial age, I think is very interesting. It's like being a obviously when you worked as a PE teacher, it's similar, but yeah. you're giving them different skills um, to be professional footballers. So were they? the ones that were chosen like picked out and um, scouted and yeah. put in an academy wow yeah, that's yeah. such a young age nine goodness. yeah so that that's that's a part of um the strategic plan for development here mm-hmm. in the uk mm-hmm. so that's the youngest age that they start at well, that was a fantastic opportunity i passed that up as well mm-hmm. so eventually i decided to to part ways for the club yeah um just because I think the travel just started to become too overwhelming. I did that for eight months. Yeah, that's a long time to be traveling from Scotland to London back and forth yeah. like that. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, what are the skills that somebody would need to be an effective sports psychologist, do you think? I would say hmm, patience. Mm. So I started, as I said, I would have started my MSc some nine years ago. Mm-hmm. And I told you that I waited five years mm-hmm. um, before I got the, the opportunity to get onto the professional doctor. And I also mentioned that that was a scholarship. So mm-hmm. it meant that after between 2012 and 2017, I was just applying for scholarships wow. and applying unsuccessfully. <laughs> 
Um, yes, I think I went back to the same scholarship like three times. Really? Third time, they were like, you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, if you give me the scholarship, no, you won't have to see me next year. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they were like, oh my gosh, she's really going to come back next year. <laughs> so really, let's get her out to the way. <laughs> I think that because I came in for three years straight, sorry, four years straight, preaching about sports ecology and the benefit it could have for the country mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, the benefit it could have for organizational development yeah. and, you know, how we could then utilize the skills that we teach athletes to then bring staffs more into alignment with the philosophies and the visions of the organization. Mm-hmm. And I think they really, at a point in time, decided if this young lady believes so much in what she's been telling us for these <laughs> years we could at least believe in her this one time and give her this scholarship um so i would say it's patience mm-hmm. and you know while i was at home i was thinking of we call it the ways to skin a cat yeah. <laughs> so i was thinking of all the other ways that i could try to accomplish you know this goal of becoming a sports psychologist so i think before i got awarded the scholarship that I did eventually get, mm-hmm. I went up for the achievement scholarship. I went up for the right. scholarship, and these were both for masters in management. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, if they're not going to value sports psychology as mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. let me go and get a qualification in management mm-hmm. and then utilize the sports psychology yeah. to show people how I could, you know, yeah, juggle it, and for people to know that they're really not. There's really not much a difference. No. Now, management is more strategy, where I find that psychology is more cerebral, it's more thought-provoking, it's more, okay, well, you've got the skills to implement it, but have you got the brains to see it done? Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, so when those two scholarships were unsuccessful, and the scholarship for the doctorate was successful, I was like... Well, maybe I just needed to to show them the level of perseverance I have. But it was very easy for, could have been very easy for a person like myself to give up and decide, oh, I'll never get a chance to become a qualified sports psychologist. So let's just stay at home and do the same old, same old and settle down. But no, I tried and I tried. (laughs) And even now I'm still trying. I've had to have the patience that I had all of those years to then Mm -hmm. recognize okay things aren't as straightforward mm-hmm. as I thought they would have been again because I thought you know the UK was the gold standard and I think it still is and it still can be if, if things within the system are changed yeah but with everything that I've gone through that patience has, has really kept me grounded it's, tested, it's been tested at times yeah but I think yeah going through this and trying to see it through is that patience that'll get me where I need to be definitely it sounds like what you're talking about I've heard from so many different psychologists a lot and it doesn't matter what field that kind of like dogged determination the vision like you know where you want to be and it's just about trying to figure out how to skin a cat and get to the end point doing different things if the first door closes how do you get around it how do you jump over it I think that's the way it's sold to most postgraduates though So, you know, on postgraduate programs, you're told, oh, yeah, you know, to just become chartered, you just need to do two years of training. Absolutely. You know, and and you're all like, oh, my gosh, and two years and that's it. And I'll be a 
colleges so when you're finished the postgraduate program you're like well I just need two years so and then you realize oh you need two years of work you need two years of professional development you need two years of evidence in CPV and then when you recognize oh whoa there are not very many jobs in sports psychology and then you realize well I'm an immigrant and you know Mm -hmm. you're actually gonna be I, I did doubly disadvantaged yeah. because of your immigration status and because of the way that you speak and, you know, being a black woman and <laughs> people never weigh in those things. So when that reality hit me, mm-hmm. when I finally got this opportunity in 2018, I was just a bit like, whew, whoa, you know, I was really, really, for the lack of a better word, shell shocked. You know, yeah. that's more like, a term for war but it did feel like a war for me <laughs> yeah no absolutely I, I would say that that's the correct term yeah so it's like this this war that you're in that's only visible to you yeah you speak to people about it they're all like oh you're just overthinking it it's not a big deal but it's definitely every day is like survival so you're living off your savings mm-hmm. um Luckily, I'm married, so I had some person to be there with me, mm-hmm. you know, through those first nine months, I would say, of coming over to the UK, and we used a lot of money in those nine months, mm-hmm. uh, money that we probably should have been saving, <laughs> you know, and then I I became totally dependent again, and mm-hmm. it was hard, you know, it's hard. because it's just like, I... I don't want to be this. I don't want to be here. You know, I want to be progressive. And it really caused a lot of questions with respect to my decision making. Like I question whether or not I did the right thing. Yeah. And it was hard. Um, So it is like this war, (laughs) this internal battle. Absolutely. (laughs) Again, I can relate like (laughs) every other, every few months I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And then you're like, all right, you get something, something falls into place. You're like, oh, okay, I understand. And then a few months later, it's, why am I doing this? (laughs) So I totally understand that kind of like questioning your decision-making skills. But I think it's just very indicative of that kind of doctoral and even any academic journey is very, very similar. But I think the, the higher up you go, the more confusing it gets especially like you were talking about the when you're at MSE level or even before that oh we just do need to do two more years and then you'll be charted and you're like oh yeah that's easy the same with occupational exactly the same I remember sitting in a um, lecture hall being lectured talked about professional development I'm like yeah it'll be easy I'll just get a job afterwards and where I am, am I like over 10 years later, I'm still not charted, but I've kind of given, I'm not a charted occupational psychologist because it's like you said, it's, it's really difficult and it just wasn't for me. And it wasn't necessarily something that I thought was worth my time or effort. So I've kind of left that on the side, but I've still picked up a few other things. So yeah, definitely yeah. can relate to that. So the kind of last question I'm going to ask is around and you've spoken about it a bit before, but I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to do a little bit more of a deep dive around being a black woman in sports psychology, like sports mm-hmm. psychology in general, for psychologists, especially at undergrad level, is not something that's really spoken about in terms of career paths. I knew about what sports psychology that existed, but I don't think I've ever, ever met one apart from you. So mm-hmm. especially, and I'm, this is a guest but I'm assuming that there's not very many people of colour 
in sports psychology as with most Presently, um, I believe another young lady, she enrolled, I was told, something this year. Um, so now it would be two of us, black females, um, in training. Um, there's one male, he's chartered. Yes, yeah, so technically it would be three of us in an entire field. And I think there are 170 trainees, so two black women in 170. Um, but she's British. So mm-hmm. I think it's still quite different because then she wouldn't have the restrictions that I would have. And you yeah. know, she, she's got her British accent and she's, she's more accustomed to the culture, I would assume. Um, haven't had the opportunity to have a conversation with her yet but yeah so it's been it's been interesting going to conferences and being the only black person and you know being hired for a job (laughs) so when I was hired for the job at the football club there was another young lady who was shortlisted so it was she and I I guess going head to head Mm -hmm. we had to present and you know and then Ultimately, I got selected for the role and she saw me at a conference and admitted that she didn't want to talk to me. She was like, yeah, I saw yesterday, but I didn't want to say hi. And I was like, okay, I don't care. <laughs> like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, and it, it's, just, it's just things like that, you know, mm. that people may think, oh, well, it was just a job. And I don't think I would ever... You know, if I went up for an opportunity and I saw some person that was successful, yeah, I don't think I would ever have the the courage to go and tell them, "Oh, yeah, I didn't want to talk to you." <laughs> I, I've made friends at job interviews before. Like, I've literally had deep conversations yeah. with people and kept in touch afterwards. So that competitive aspect, yeah. So I I could list the amount of um, gosh, the amount of things that I've actually experienced. Mm. I know it really sounds daunting to some people. So when I, I speak to like friends at home and I think there are some people that were like, oh girl, I would have been back home already. Mm. <laughs> comments about my hair, comments about the way that I speak. Yeah. Um, and working with the placement that I told you about, I was promised to, you know, go to the World Cup with the team mm-hmm. when they qualified and when they qualified, I was left off. And that oh. was no justification. Um, Obviously, then there would have been some financial incentives because when you travel, you get stipends. And I really thought, okay, well, I've committed all of this time for free, practically, Mm. that they would have seen that as their opportunity to at least, you know, reward Dawn for her time. Yeah. So when I was told that I wasn't going to be going and it was because something along the lines about, you know, they didn't deem sports psychology to be necessary, but for the the mom's prayer for the 18, 19 mom's prayer, it was, and you know, I was traveling all the way up from London and, you know, committing all of this time. And it came as such a shock to players that when they came to ask me, <laughs> mm. where are you going, Dawn? And I'm like, oh, you know, that's how things go sometimes. And I kept it really professional, obviously, because, you know, the decisions that were made had nothing to do with them. Mm, yeah. And, yeah. Um, that was something that really came as a blow to me because yeah. prior to, to that, I would have been discussing some things that I felt needed to be discussed, mainly mm-hmm. the way that some people behave towards me, some things that were said. Mm-hmm. And I discussed this with both the placement provider and the supervisor. Mm-hmm. And I would have been very frank about it, you know. Are people within the organization racist? You know, if there is an issue with me being a black woman, mm-hmm. I prefer to know no so that I could 
seek other opportunities elsewhere and so I can let the university know that this isn't working yeah you know so to get to that point some 19 months in with all the time that was sacrificed and then be told oh yeah you know we're not going to take you and I think they ended up taking some other professional as a as an analyst some person that was hardly ever around Mm. Um, and I just had to kind of take that one to the chin and be all graceful about it you know, again, because if you speak about it, they say, oh, you're angry, you're upset, oh, yeah. angry black woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thing. And I was just like, when parents came to ask, I was just like, oh, well, you know that that's how it goes. So everyone was shocked, to be fair. And I never once, you know, said anything, you know, to to bring other people down. I just kept yeah. it cute and just kept yeah. it moving. And um, yeah, so that was definitely... One of the things after months of trying to get people to see, okay, well, this is discriminatory. Mm-hmm. You can't do this. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't do this. It just came out to me missing a very missing out on a very valuable opportunity. Um, you know, at the time, I think it was the same working within football as well. Yeah. You know, people say things about speaking less Bajan, people asking things about your hair. Speaking less you know? Bajan. Like, yeah, people would ask you stuff about, you know, your hair and if you smell like coconut. <laughs> <laughs> you know, lots of things that I, I don't know if it's just like trying to strike conversation or, you know, if it would be just, I, I just don't, I just don't get it. I just don't understand it because it, it's, there are things that I wouldn't say to strike exactly. up a conversation. Exactly. So I try not to internalize. So I never internalize. Mm-hmm. What I do is that something happens, I get upset, I speak about it, maybe maybe at home with my husband or with family. Mm-hmm. But if something becomes too overwhelming, I just address it. Absolutely. Immediately. So then if something is asked, I then answer, why do you, why did you ask me that? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and I think automatically, once you see a person getting on the defense, and mm-hmm. you know for a fact that it wasn't done from a place of like innocence or like ignorance. If yeah. you're offended because I'm asking you about something that you did, it means automatically that you had an agenda, you know, yeah. to asking that specific question. And I, and I, that's the way that I challenge um, things that occur. Yeah, I've 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 experienced a lot, and that's the truth. I've experienced a lot mm. in these two and a half years. I've actually had to academically, I've had to put my foot down as well. Yes, because I felt as if when I stated a lot of the things that I experienced, especially mm-hmm. with my supervisor, mm-hmm. and it was just kind of swept under the carpet. Yeah, I just think, well. What's going to happen when other people, other black women see me and say, oh, you know, I want to be a sports psychologist yeah. and I tell them, oh, well, you need to do this and you need to come to the UK and you need to do this and that. And then they're, they, they come and they're treated the same way. Exactly. You know, and they're not as strong as I am. And they're not mm-hmm. able to cope. Then it just feels as if the system isn't really designed for people like myself mm-hmm. to thrive, to succeed, you know, to, to, to be out there, to, to be displaying the levels of intellect and intelligence that we do possess. And I'm committed to not letting that get me down. So I've been very vocal Mm -hmm. about the racial discrimination that I've experienced over the, over the years. Mm -hmm. And um, people actually only started acknowledging it in June. 
Of course they did. So it's like oh, how it's how convenient. Everyone's working on lines matter. It's like this. Whereas when I was tweeting about all of this stuff I was going through, I started tweeting from November 2019 mm. specifically because that's when it came down to, you know, at the placement, something happened and we got into a very heated discussion. And I actually started to say, but you know, that the things that you've been doing are discriminatory. And some things were said, oh my gosh, I would not even repeat it, but some things were said mm. to me that I felt like, whoa, you know, and I remember typing up a very pleasant note and mm-hmm. I was like you know you you read you you watch these things on tv you read about it in the news mm-hmm. but hearing about discrimination and experiencing discrimination is just whew, it's out of this world and I think at the time people were like oh my god what's her problem because you know they always think oh when you speak about discrimination mm-hmm. people always think oh you're just playing the victim or yeah. just over it or yeah. you know there are other people in the world with problems. Yeah. But what discrimination does is that it seeks to strike at the core of the of the individual. Yeah. So when you could get a person to begin to question their identity Absolutely. or think, you know, they're the problem. Yeah. That's where you have the real issues. Whereas with me, I'm not the problem. There are people with problems who seek to project those problems onto me. But uh-huh. what I do is that I raise a defense uh-huh. rather than sitting at home and complaining about it or, you know, thinking, oh, well, it really is my fault. Oh, I need to change my hair. Uh-huh. Maybe I need to speak more British. I realize, hey, uh-uh, you know, this is who I am. Yeah. You know, that's not going to change. And yeah, when I started to tweet, people were like, whoa, you know, and it's always this thing where it's like, oh, you don't want to be that person. Mm. I have to be that person because that's how I protect protect my peace. That's my self-preservation. Yeah. You know, and I say on committees, as I would have told you. Yeah. And when Black Lives Matter became a thing, Mm -hmm. everyone is like, hey you know so do you want to know talk about the discovery exactly experience and I was like no I've been talking (laughs) about it for two years look at my yeah 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 no not really um again because that's my lived experience yeah it's just funny to see how because things are no there's just a magnifying glass on on our lived experiences that people know want to care because they know want to be on the right side of morality you know and um I just don't have time for it because truthfully the support that I would have required should have come at the time when I started speaking about it um more so before rather than you thinking oh dear here's another black person starting a problem it is a problem exactly that people aren't willing to address and it's it's been a problem hundreds of years this isn't new for us this is like you're saying it's our lived experiences so when you're getting blatant i'll call them attacks attacks at every angle and no one's listening to you and no one wants to fix it and then something hits the stage and is in vogue and everyone feels like they need to do something that actually you should have listened to me three years ago not now I'm actually already exhausted. I was exhausted then, but I'm even more exhausted now. So kind of just leave it, <laughs> leave it for a bit or yeah. maybe do something with action rather than just asking me questions that I've already told you the answer to. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, that was, I, yeah, I, for me to detail every individual, every yeah. separate 
<laughs> every separate occasion it would be I tell myself I could write a book on mm-hmm. some of the things that I've seen mm-hmm. done overtly and some mm-hmm. of the things that have been done covertly things that would cause a person to go home and literally like question who they are yeah like racial gaslighting that's what it is it's yeah. like did I make it up am I over exaggerated did I imagine it yeah yeah um so that's that's just interesting but again I've I've I would not be a proper psychologist in training if I couldn't train my own mind to understand that the problem isn't me mm. you know the problem isn't who I am I was born this way the problem isn't the color of my skin the problem mm-hmm. isn't my nationality mm-hmm. it's not my ethnicity mm-hmm. the problem is the person that is trying to make me out to be the problem absolutely right so that's yeah. that's just one of the the things that I've come to recognize and mm-hmm. yeah I think the experience has really made me stronger so the positive that I've taken from it is that I recognize that the world isn't going to change anytime soon and mm-hmm. if I plan to, to fly higher mm-hmm. um but you will meet meet people that will have issues mm-hmm. with you regardless and yeah. If I could deal so constructively with the issues that I face, I, I think speaking out is constructive because you know what? You're not attacking anyone. You're not naming anyone. I haven't yeah. named anyone no. um, while, we were, while we were speaking. Mm-hmm. Again, because what's a message if, you know, you can't bring it over in the way that it should be yeah. brought? Yeah, I've just come to recognize that, it's, again, it's a learning curve for me. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have obstacles. You're going to meet people that won't like you but you've Mm -hmm. always got to find a way to deal with them you know and to grow from those experiences so it's been a real it's been a real learning curve for me this these last (laughs) one and a half years but we shall see yeah well we're coming to an end now but I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time like it's been fascinating as someone that has done psychology for years I've always wanted to ask what does a what does a sports psychologist do? And now I have a bit more of a, an idea and it's the lived experience that you've been through through the years of MSc to doctorate to sport. Well, before that, you're, a, you're an athlete yourself and all of those things to, to where you are now. I think it's a really interesting journey. So um, one thing I'll ask is um, where can people find you? Like on the internet, on, on social media, like if someone wants to find you or ask questions. So I am on Twitter. I'm my handle will be at sportsake.uk. Mm-hmm. Instagram it will be at sportsake.doc and on LinkedIn I'm just Dawn Marie Armstrong. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Dawn. And you have a great day. Thank the you. rest of it. And I'm sure so many people will be really interested to hear your story. So thanks very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Black Business Psychology Networks podcast. Please stay tuned for other podcasts.